Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Well, good morning. How are we feeling? Amen, amen. We're about to get into another exciting installment of the book of Revelation. Have you guys been enjoying this so far? Yes, it's amazing what God has revealed as we dig deep into the scripture. And I'm so excited for uh, the continual revelation that we're receiving through this. As Scott said, if you is if this is your first time here, uh, we want to say welcome. We challenge all of our guests to come three weeks in a row. Because we know how hard it is for you to find a spiritual home, especially to pick one on one Sunday or for one visit. And so if this is your first time, we encourage you to keep coming back. And then if you make it for three weeks, let us know. We'll celebrate with you. You'll get an awesome high five. And, uh, and if you feel like God is leading you to make Vertical Life Church home, we say welcome home. And uh, we want to invite you to our, our Next Steps membership class to see uh, kind of the vision of the church, where you fit, and where you can get connected and involved and uh, that's such an exciting thing. So we are in uh, week seven now. We'll be in Revelation chapter two. And uh, last week we were really kind of unpacking what Jesus was saying all along as he's talking about as the end of days come upon the earth, how there's going to be times of tribulation and struggle. As a matter of fact, for those who call themselves Christians, who follow Jesus, who believe in Christ, there is even going to come upon the world really difficult times, especially times of persecution. And we even saw how in the last days there's going to be this, what the Bible calls the great rebellion or the great falling away, how many people are actually going to leave their faith. They're going to turn their back on their Christian faith. They might have grown up in church their whole life. They, uh, maybe uh, their parents were involved and they have this rich history of faith. But when the time comes, they're going to turn their back on it and they're going to leave the faith altogether. Well, we're going to begin to see here in the next letters, we're going to get into both the, uh, the letter to the church of Pergamum and the letter to the church of Thyatira, because they're both pretty connected together. But we're going to see is there's another layer to the falling away, the rebellion. It's not just people who were believers once who are now becoming atheists and, and walking away, but it also includes an apostasy or a, a perversion of the gospel, a perversion of what God has taught, what Jesus has revealed in his word, and how we begin to see that not just in culture, but how that is beginning to infiltrate the church. And so we're going to begin, this is going to be a, a two-parter, we're going to look at kind of the way Jesus introduces himself and the rebuke he brings to this, these churches, and the next week we'll pick up and we'll look at the promises that God makes to the churches and see for those who hold fast what's coming, and that's going to be really exciting as well as we continue on. But we want to encourage you, if you're not already, begin reading the book of Revelation at home. So go home and, and open the Bible. It's, it's that big dusty book you have on your end table that, that you don't know why is there, but, but it's been there for years. You, you can actually open that thing, and it's got words in it. And when you read them, they make sense. It, you know, it, it's kind of cool how God talks to you through that. And the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. So you can open there. And you can begin reading, and we encourage you to do that so you kind of know ahead of time what we're going to be discussing. But we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 12. And here is what Jesus says to the church of Pergamum. 
It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. There are some of you there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We're going to jump down to verse 18. And this is to the letter of the church at Thyatira. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church at Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patience, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart and mind. And I'll give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus... We know as we read these words, it's a different tone than what we're used to. As we look in the Gospels and we see how you're gathering people together and your word is, Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you peace. There is, there is this tone of comfort. There's this tone of acceptance. There's this tone of love in the Gospels. But in the letters to the Church of Revelation, your, your tone is shifts from one of gathering the hurting to bringing a strong word against the unfaithful. And so, God, I pray that you would not let me misinterpret your heart today, that your heart would be on display because your heart is a heart of love. God, you are love. You're the very definition of love. And so, God, as we unpack your word, I pray that the truth would be known, your spirit would speak, and, God, you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that understands and a mind ready to believe and receive and respond to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And we thank you, God, for your unfailing love, your unconditional mercy and grace. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So there is a lot here, and there's more that we could pull out of just these few verses than what we have time in the remainder of the year to unpack. So we're just going to highlight some of the main things that we see in here. And the first is really the introductions. The, what we saw in, as Jesus is revealed to John, John describes him uh, in the opening pages to the book of Revelation. And as he's describing him, when Jesus begins writing these letters, he peels from those descriptions to begin the letters to these churches. And so the first thing to note is how Jesus addresses both of these churches. He addresses Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
and to Thyatira as the one who has eyes of flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. So what this imagery is, is this is the imagery of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, the one with the sword prepared for battle, the glorious one. This is an imagery, he's starting these letters as the one who is ready to lay down the gauntlet of judgment. And so we can see from these letters, as, he's, as we even just read them, he's using pretty heavy and strong language against those who have fallen away from the truth. So again, this is directly from Jesus himself to John. And he's addressing the churches, right? This isn't the world. This isn't people outside of the church. This is two people in the church who call themselves Christian. And this is how he's presenting himself to these believers who didn't fall away from their faith altogether, like going from being a faithful believer to an atheist. These believers, they fell away from the purity of the faith. They brought in pagan practices and commingled the two together so they could live in both worlds. Right? The Word of God says that we have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Jesus says, come out from among them, right? We're in the world, but we're not to be among the world or of the world. But what these believers were doing is they were saying, it's too hard to be separate from the world, so we're going to bring the world into the church rather than come out from among the church. And they begin to incorporate the very uh, perceptions, ideologies, and practices of the culture. What's interesting about the city of Pergamum is that it was an important city at the time it was a, uh, an important Roman city. It was uh, the seat of authority in the area, and it was rife with temples and shrines. And Jesus tells these believers in Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. Where you live, that's where Satan has his throne. Like, if you wanted to know where Satan's throne was, it's in Pergamum. How encouraging would it be to you for God to speak to you and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, you live where Satan has the authority, his kingdom. That, that, that's where you live. Your background, that's where Satan's backyard is. I mean, that, that's like, oh my gosh, that's pretty important, right? So if you think about what he's saying, he's like, where you dwell, that's where Satan himself, that's where his throne is. That's where he rules from. And scholars look, have looked at this, and there are many different candidates of what he could possibly be referring to. Um, but it could be all of them simultaneously. But what's interesting is that there was a temple in Pergamum dedicated to the emperor of Rome. They had a cult for emperor worship. And it, and it was dedicated to the worship of Caesar Augustus. It came about around 29 BC. But also in Pergamum, a very well-known location was an altar to the same guy we've been running up against since the beginning of chapter 1. It's the altar of Zeus. And we have a picture well, we'll throw up on the screen. This is a replica of the altar of Zeus. What's important about this altar is it wasn't only extravagant, it wasn't only one of the main attractions to Pergamum, but depicted on it is the battle between the gods and the titans. The pagan version of Genesis chapter 6, when there was a rebellion in heaven that ultimately led to the flood. And so this place was well known. It was highly important. It was, a, it was one of the magnificent places in early history. And we know from our study that Zeus claimed to be the most high. 
Matter of fact, John uses terms to describe Jesus that were often used for Zeus, like the first and the last, or the one who was, is, and is yet to come. So the possibility, the high possibility is that this altar was literally the very throne of Satan, as opposed to the temple of Augustus. But in this letter to Pergamum, Jesus acknowledges their persecution and how many of them were remaining faithful for their faith, even under persecution, they were holding fast to their faith in Christ, but that yet there were some who were falling into idolatry, the worship of other gods. And he mentions this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't really know anything about the Nicolaitans other than they're mentioned to the letter of Church of Ephesus. It's the only two times in Scripture where they're mentioned, and they're not, there's no trace of them found in all of history. In all of antiquity, there is no record of the Nicolaitans. So what scholars have done is they've looked at how the, the name or the etymology of the name to kind of give insight onto who these people might be. And it's left them to conclude that the term Nicolaitan was a pejorative or a derogatory term that kind of described this particular group. And they are connected to the other individual Jesus names in the letter, the individual named Balaam. Now, the word Nicolaitan means he who overcomes the people. Nicolaitan means he who overcomes the people. The name Balaam means he who consumes or he who rules over the people. And so they're very closely connected. And so scholars believe that, that Balaam stands as the archetype for a false teacher, false prophet, and the Nicolaitans describe those who would follow the ways of these false prophets and false teachers. And so this is where uh, this terminology really comes from. And what's important is to remember what Jesus prophesied in the last days. He said in the last days there would be false teachers and there would be false prophets who would lead many people astray. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, he prophesies this about the last days. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having itching ears. Somebody say itching ears. Right? Your ears don't itch just when someone's talking about you behind your back. Right? Itching ears means you're, you're hungry to hear something. You're hungry for something. They have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. So a sign of the last days is that there are people that are hungry for something. They're hungry to be told what they want to hear. And they don't want to be told the truth. They don't want to be told what the Word of God says. They want to be told what they want to hear. And this is a sign of the end, that there's going to be a culture shift in the church for those who once desired the truth will no longer desire it, nor will they endure it. But yet there will still be some who will be faithful. Paul again to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of who? The teaching of demons. So it's not just that there will be people who don't know the Bible that are setting themselves as teachers. There will be a demonic influence that will rise up in the church that will empower people of influence to mislead and lead people astray. And this is part of the great rebellion. So they're in the church, but they are not led by the Holy Spirit. They are led by a false religious spirit, a demonic power that twists the truth to lead people astray. 
This is one of the signs of the great falling away. So Jesus and both Paul spoke concerning about the end, that these demonic doctrines, these demonic powers will creep into the church to mislead people. This is the opposite of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 that says, as believers, we are to take every thought captive and we are to rise up against every stronghold and false argument that keeps people from knowing God. We're to use the mighty powers of God to tear down these demonic strongholds. But in the last days, there will be those in the church that will rise up to prop up the very strongholds we're meant to tear down. And not just prop them up, but encourage them. This was also the issue in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, he says, But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. So the believers in Thyatira, they were not just caught up in persecution just for being Christians from the outside world. They were also caught up with pressure from those within the church who are holding to these false beliefs, these false doctrines and practices that violated the will and the word of God. They were being pressured to come alongside with what would be culturally relevant in their day and age. And these deep things of Satan, you know, I had a, um, a pastor that I, I knew and, and talked to at one time who said she used to tell her church, and she was very liberal, she used to tell her church, it's not as important what the Bible says, you got to look underneath the surface to see what the Bible means. And that caught me off guard because I was like, who gets to determine what it means under the surface? Maybe under the surface is where the deep things of Satan are found. And we just should stick with what the Bible says. Amen? So these demonic influences, these false religious spirits rise up to twist the truth and to bind people into demonic strongholds. And there are two figures that Jesus really brings out in these letters. The first, and they both typify this false doctrine and false teachers. The first is Balaam in the letter of the church of Pergamum. And then Jezebel to the church of Thyatira. Now, Balaam comes from the Old Testament, comes from the book of Numbers. So as the nation of Israel, they've come out of Egypt, right? God split the sea. They're now in wandering and heading towards the promised land. They end up going through the land of the Moabites, and King Balak knew what they had been doing to the nations they'd come across. They'd been wiping them out. God had been showing up and laying the gauntlet down on these nations. He destroyed, virtually decimated Egypt. And so Balak was afraid that when the Israelites came to their land, that they'd do the same thing to him. So he thought, we're going to cut them off at the pass. And so he goes to this guy named Balaam, who was a well-known prophet at the time, who was a prophet for hire. You could either pay him to get blessing or cursing. That's what, what he was known for. And so he goes to Balaam and he says, I want you to curse these people, these Israelites, so that I can overthrow them in battle and destroy them. And so he goes to Balaam, and there's this cool long story. There's a talking donkey in there and all the stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, um, but essentially, he can't curse the people of Israel. God won't let Balaam curse the people of Israel because who God has blessed cannot be cursed. If God has put his blessing on you, the enemy cannot put his curse upon you. And so Balaam tries to curse the nation of Israel, but he can't do it. God won't let him do it. And, of course, this makes King Balak angry. So what does Balaam ultimately do? He ultimately causes Israel to curse themselves. 
If he couldn't curse them, he's going to get them to curse themselves. How does he do it? He convinces the women of the Moabite kingdom to go in and seduce the men of Israel. So by their seduction powers, he can get them to follow their, their ways to end up sacrificing and eating food offered to idols, engage in sexual immorality, and so bringing upon themselves the curse of God for their idolatry. And so this is what Balaam was known for. He was a false teacher who caused Israel to curse themselves. And now the Moabite god is named Chemosh. That was their primary god. But he's also closely um, connected to another god, a Canaanite god called the god Baal. And so this connects to Jezebel and Thyatira. Jezebel comes from the book of Kings. She was a big bad gal who stood against Elijah the prophet. And uh, she married King Ahab. She wasn't an Israelite, but she married King Ahab. She was a Phoenician woman who was a priestess of the god Baal. And Baal was a bad guy. He was a bad god. Matter of fact, the worship of Baal included all manner of sexual immorality and perversion. Baal's wife or wives was called Astarte or Ishtar. It was also connected to the goddess Inanna from uh, Mesopotamian. They, she was the first goddess that was connected to the turning of the sexes it was a it was a ceremony called the turning where he would she would take male prophets or priests and turn them into feminized priestesses for the purpose of sexual activity in the temple and so there's all manner of sexual immorality happening with the worship of baal including child sacrifices and jezebel was a priestess of baal when she got to israel and married king ahab the two together with them they transformed Israel from being a nation dedicated to God to a nation dedicated to the worship of Baal. She even was single-handedly responsible for coming against the prophets of God, killing the prophets of God, until Elijah set fire to Mount Carmel and killed all the prophets of Baal. So she is known as a wicked priestess in the Bible in the Old Testament. And so Jezebel, being the champion of worship of Baal, both of sexual immorality and child sacrifice, it was known for these insidious practices. So what Jesus is doing by using these two figures of the past, he's connecting them with what was happening in these two different cities and what was being incorporated into the church. These pagan cults were now coming, their influence was coming into the church and he's revealing that these believers who attended these churches, who call themselves by the name of Christ, are now participating in feasting and gluttonous behavior, in, in, in sexual immorality, and offering sacrifices to idols, as well as participating in child sacrifices. Now the word sexual immorality, if you look up in another translation in the King James Version, it might be the word fornication. It comes from the Greek word pornea, where was where we get the term pornography. So sexual immorality includes any type of sexual content outside the confines of God's design, the confines of marriage. And so they were engaged in all manner of sexual sexuality. Now the reason why Jesus is so against sexual immorality or fornication or pornea, why he cares who you sleep with and how you do it, is because God designed sexuality for the good of humanity so that we would flourish, right? Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly, but the enemy exists to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. 
So anytime we pervert God's ways, we bring destruction, we bring corruption, we unleash the curse of sin and death into the world. And so Jesus cares about why and how we interact and we live our lives. Because when you pervert God's ways, you invite destruction. You curse yourself. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth, he says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. You know, we like to say that all sin is the same. And that might be true as far as all sin separates you from God. But the consequences of all sin is not the same. A little white lie to your friend is not the same as engaging in sexual immorality with somebody who's not your spouse. They have a different impact, a different effect. They, they, they bring about different issues and different consequences. See, the reason why sexual sin is included in Balaam's method of operation and Jezebel's and the Nicolaitans is because our enemy, the devil, knows how powerful the power of sex is. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be in every advertisement on television. It, it wouldn't be everywhere all the time. The enemy can use the power of sex to bring a curse upon the people. If he can't curse you himself because God has put his blessing on you, he will get you to curse yourself. Once you head down that road, it's very hard to reverse, which is why the name Balaam in the Nicolaitans means to consume or rule over the people, because the enemy knows how to put you in bondage, how to twist the truth, and he uses the power of sexuality and sensuality to dominate a person, which ultimately leads to dominate a people, which leads to dominate a nation. And the more perverse, the more sensual and sexual a country becomes, the more under the power of the enemy it becomes. Paul tells the church of Corinth the way to avoid pornea, the way to avoid sexual immorality, the way to stay away from cursing yourself by engaging in these types of behaviors. In 1 Corinthians 7, 2, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. There is one way to avoid the curse that the enemy wants to bring. It's to do things the way God said to do them. One man, one woman, together in eternal covenant. Not that sexuality should be fluid and that it doesn't matter who you love. He doesn't say each man should have a husband or wife should have a wife or any man or in between or how you identify. God's plan for humanity, for sexuality, is there be one man, one woman representing Jesus Christ and his church as the man loves his wife and gives himself up for her in sacrificial love. And the wife responds by reverencing and honoring her husband. Together the two proclaim the gospel message with their life from death to to you part. That's God's plan. And the enemy wants to break that, and he wants to twist it, and he wants to pervert it. And these believers were not only engaging in this pornea, they were promoting it. They were celebrating it as a beautiful thing. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, there's a slippery slope that begins to happen when you begin to twist the truth of God. When you twist the truth of God, you begin to go down a path that leads to all manner of sex and all manner of, of sinfulness. So not only is there idolatry, but there's also immorality and other wicked behaviors. And for our purposes today, we want to key in on verse 32 of Romans chapter 1, 
as we talk about this rebellion against God and those who've fallen away from the knowledge of God in regards to this great rebellion that happens even within the church, Paul says this to the church of Rome. He says, though they knew God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what ends up happening as you head down this slippery slope in a culture, and especially as we begin to give in to the doctrines of devils, these demonic principles, these demonic lies, the believers in the churches knew better. Why? Because they have the word of God. They know what God has said from the beginning, how God set up and designed. They knew what Jesus affirmed in the New Testament. They knew what the apostles proclaimed, but it didn't matter. They no longer cared. And by purposefully committing religious adultery, going after these false gods, these perverse sexual practices, child sacrifices, they turn from the true faith, and worse, they begin to promote it as if it were a good thing. And so they encourage the twisting of the scriptures to enable and justify the pursuits of following these doctrines of devils, which many are doing today. And I just want to say there are some really awesome people who are caught up in some really demonic things. And they don't even know it. Many of the things that we do, many of the struggles we have, they are rooted in a demonic lie. And until we put the light of truth on it, we don't know the difference. That's how the enemy gets in. That's how the enemy gets us. And there are people that you would want as your best friends, you'd want to hang out and eat at your table with, that have bought into these demonic lies. And the enemy's been able to twist their reality into believing that what they're doing is actually a good thing. This is why biblical authority and the knowledge of God is so important. God said through the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Biblical authority is so important because it is the scripture that teaches us what to do that is right, teaches us what is wrong. It gives us encouragement and instruction in righteousness. It's profitable to correct us. But that's not what the believers in the last days are going to be interested in who are involved in the falling away. They created false religion for themselves to give a false security of salvation. And since they mirror the world and the culture's view on morality, it only creates more division in the church. And pressure on faithful believers to follow suit. Because if you choose to hold fast to the word of God, you will be considered a hater, a bigot, or just the bad guy. And Jesus has some strong words for those who would twist the truth. He tells the Pergamum believers, if you don't repent, I will come after you with a two-edged sword of judgment. And to the church of Thyatira, he says, if Jezebel doesn't repent and those following her don't repent, a.k.a. her, AKA her children, he's going to throw her onto a sickbed. That word sickbed can also be translated as a stretcher. So you ever heard that, that, that phrase whenever two dudes are like face-to-face -face and they're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and they're talking trash and one will say, you know, you better back down or you'd be leaving here on a what? On a stretcher. This is what Jesus is saying to these Christians in the church. 
He's saying if you don't repent, if you don't wake up to the reality of the truth, if you don't see what you're doing, how you're not following me, you're not trusting in me, you're not in obedience to my word, if you continue the path that you're doing, when you see me, you're not going to welcome your redeemer. You're going to meet your judge. And you're going to leave on a stretcher. This is important to meditate on. Again, Revelation 2.23, Jesus says, I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I give to each of you according to your works. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. I know every heart. I know every mind. And the reason why I'm going to bring the judgment, especially to those in the church, is so all the churches know what is the truth. What is righteous? What is holy? This is important to meditate on because one day he's coming back. And I'm fearful for those who have bought the lie, who think they're right with God, but they're far from him. And not just falling into demonic doctrines, but also engage in and celebrate immorality and these different virtues that the culture holds near and dear. Because judgment day is going to come. That's why Revelation is written so that we will know, so that we can be encouraged in our faith and hold fast to the day we receive our salvation. So this is the letters to the church of Thyatira and Pergamum. This is the rebuke to those who are falling away. And it's important we understand these things because there are manifestations of this falling away in our day today. Right? These letters weren't just for people 2,000 years ago. These letters were written so that we have knowledge of what it will be like before Jesus returns in our day today. No one today would admit to worshiping idols in our country. Like you talk to somebody, like, do you worship idol? No one's going to admit to that, even though in Flint there is a Hindu temple that has an idol set up that they offer sacrifices of fruit and vegetables to it. You can actually search it online. They have it all on Facebook. I mean, we, the idolatry, like the olden days, continues to happen today even in our country. But no one that, that's outside of that, that culture, that realm, would admit to worshiping idols. But when we place something in our lives above God, above his word, and we look to that as our means of, of knowing what is right and wrong, we fall into idolatry. Many Christians have diminished the word of God in their lives. They've elevated cultural beliefs and understandings and even their own feelings about what is true. All the while, the knowledge of God statistically is in rampant fashion becoming less and less and less in our nation. The latest statistics said that the knowledge of the word of God is at an epidemic level, even among Christians. And so we're basically biblically illiterate by and large, and we've chosen to elevate many things in our nation. And as it relates to these letters, we've chosen to elevate things like our reproductive rights and our preferred sexual identity and expression over the word of God and our faith and trust in Christ. And the same spirit that was alive in the world then is the same spirit alive in the world today, influencing our culture and even the church in many parts of the world. And there have been many attempts to blur the the lines of sexual identity and preference and what has been historically expressed and biblically as sin and twist the scripture to make it okay. Jonathan Kahn in his book, The Paradigm, he's commenting on how America, the only other nation in the world historically that was founded and dedicated to Yahweh God, other than the nation of Israel, 
how we are now following the very same paradigm or the very same pattern that Israel was following before God brought their destruction under the Babylonians many, many years ago. Even the same signs that God sent into the nation prior to their fall are arising in the nation of America. And because America is the primary influence and culture in the world, I think we as believers, especially in our day and age, should pay attention to the signs. But here's what Jonathan Kahn writes in his book. He says, Just a few in the modern world would ever admit to serving idols. Far fewer would ever admit to serving Baal. Yet when civilization that has once known the ways of God turned from those ways, it inevitably turns to Baal. The name Baal is never spoken. Nevertheless, he will be served in one form or another. When a culture or life gives itself over to the spirit of increase, gain, profit, materialism, prosperity, and self-interest, above all things, it has given itself to Baal. And I think we can look at our world and we can look at our culture and we can see how the worship of Baal is ripe in our nation. We can see the signs in our nation of spiritual decline. And look at major moments in our history as a nation that often determines the course of the world. And for the last 60 years, just about in every decade, there is a pivotal moment, a pivotal uh, decision or action that takes place to shift the nation to lead us further and further away from the worship of God and our founding as a Christian nation that promotes sexual immorality, the murder of the innocent, even though back in ancient times they call it child sacrifice, today we call it abortion. And there are many moments, we don't have time to cover them all, but I just want to show you for the last several years, several decades, some decisions that have come into our nation that have inched us closer and closer towards this great rebellion. The first we want to highlight, and again, these aren't all of them, there's many, many more, but we're just going to highlight a few. In 1962, the Supreme Court decision removed a school-sponsored prayer in the uh, Ingek versus Vital decision. The removal of school-sponsored prayer in the presence of education. Education is the primary influence in our nation. How we raise our children, what we educate our children, the philosophies that we infuse in our nation, that's the primary influence in our nation. And so we've removed school-sponsored prayer. What are we doing? We are removing God's presence in our schools. Why? Because we're two or more gathered in my name. I'm now among you. When we gathered for prayer, we gathered to invite God's presence into the education of our children. We no longer are able to do that. Eleven years later, on January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade was passed and legalized abortion, making it a constitutional right without passing a law. Now child sacrifice would be an accepted form of birth control. 1978, by artist, designer, a Vietnam War veteran, and then drag performer Gilbert Baker, he began using God's sign of promise not to flood the earth again as their banner to celebrate the very attitude that brought about the flood to begin with. Now, America would promote pride as a virtue, the same virtue that caused Satan's rebellion and the fall of mankind and the source for every sin. In 1980, Stone versus Graham was decided to remove the Ten Commandments from public schools. What do the Ten Commandments represent? They represent God's authority. So now we're removing God's authority in education, again, the primary influence of our nation. So we've removed his presence, now removing his authority. 
1987, on June 19th, in the Edwards versus uh, Aguilar decision, it was a groundbreaking case that ruled it unconstitutional to require creationism to be taught in public schools. So now we have the removal of God's existence. We had the removal of God's presence, then the removal of God's authority, and now the only thing that can be taught is evolution, and we're removing God's existence from education. They were targeted attacks on religious beliefs. Now, believe me, I don't think the people doing this really knew what they were doing. But there was something behind their motivation that led them to do these things. And continuing on, it's the same thing. I don't think they really understood the meaning of what they were doing, but you can see as we continued in our nation how things began to decline even further. In 1980, or 1999 and 2000, President Clinton was the first to declare June as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. He and Hillary Clinton also championed abortion unlike any other presidential candidate in history, leading to government-sanctioned and state funding of the abortion industry, as well as urging other nations to follow suit. We fast forward to 2008. There began a more dramatic shift in our culture's understanding of morality. Now, we don't have this up on the screen, but in 2001, when September 11th hit, when September 11th hit, we all knew God was calling the nation to repentance. Matter of fact, churches were flooded with people seeking God. But what did we do? We announced that we would not repent. We announced that we would defy God. Because Tom Daschle from the Senate floor, he quoted Isaiah 9:10, which is the exact voice of uh, defiance that Israel pronounced to God whenever there was destruction on Jerusalem. He says, we, our, our, our cedars were kicked down, we're going to replant with sycamores. The stones have fallen, but we're going we're gonna to build back better. And ever since 2001, rather than humbling ourselves in repentance, we've been rising up in defiance. Trump wanted to make America great again, and now Biden wants to build back better. It's this prideful mantra that we're not going to submit to God, we're going to rise up above God and show God we don't need him. In 2008, Barack Obama wins the presidency. Now, I want to show you the altar of Zeus again that I showed you at the beginning. We'll show that back up here. This is the altar of Zeus. Now, I guarantee you they didn't know what they were doing, but on the night Barack Obama accepts his speech, go ahead and show that picture up on the screen. The platform for Barack Obama's acceptance speech is a recreation of the altar of Zeus. The President of the United States is standing in front of the altar of Zeus to accept his nomination as President of the United States. Now, I promise you he had no idea, but something behind him knew what was going on. Now, in Barack Obama's presidency, we also had something new begin to uh, come about. We had the resurgence of emperor worship. Remember in Pergamum, there was the altar of Zeus, but there was also the, the temple of Augustus, where they would worship the emperor. We began to see signs of emperor worship under Barack Obama. Go to the next, the next picture. Newsweek has him listed as the second coming. Let's go to the next one. He's the god of all things. Jamie Foxx, as he introduces him at the Soul Train Awards, says, please give it up for our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama. So were they really worshiping him? Probably not. But there is something behind 
that's creating a fervor, an attachment to leaders, which is why when Donald Trump won in 2016, there was a meltdown of epic proportions. The first time we ever needed safe spaces for people to hide themselves from opposing ideologies in our nation. In 2015, there was an Ogerbefell decision in 2015 that legalized same-sex marriage. And what does Barack Obama do on that day? But he lights up the White House in rainbow colors. So now he's painting the nation's capital with a symbol of pride. And what's that telling God? We're defiant. Immorality is now America's highest authority. And we're now publicly compromised as our nation's government sanctions and promotes the very thing that God said not to do. On August 10th in 2015, the goddess Kali is presented and projected onto the Empire State Building. Artist Android Jones designed the fierce portrait of Kali, who is the goddess of time, change, power, and destruction, to make the point that Mother Nature now more than ever needs a fierce representative to fight the dangers of climate change. Shortly after, we entered the Paris Climate Accords, legally binding international treaty that would give some of our sovereignty over to uh, the National Consortium to help with the effect of climate change. Uh, praise God, Donald Trump brought us out of that, but it inches closer to that one world government. And now we're facing issues with the World Economic Forum and participating nations that would hand our sovereignty over again in the same realm, as well as a bill that's uh, being battled in Congress that in the event of another pandemic, we would give our sovereignty over to the World Health Organization to relinquish our individual freedoms to the whims of a foreign entity. In 2016, the inauguration of Donald Trump brought about division and protest and more lawlessness than we'd ever seen before. Rising from the cop shootings from years before, we now have cop assassinations. We have protesting, cities being burnt down with even more and more fervor. And again, continued emperor worship as a growing fervor and attachment to Donald Trump was seen as the savior of our nation. So much so that not even our nation, but the nation of Israel, Orthodox Jews viewed him as the second coming of King Cyrus, the king in the Old Testament who allowed Israel to go back to Jerusalem after their exile. They believed he was a, a, a fulfillment of that Cyrus uh, you know, manifestation or prophecy. And so they minted a coin with both his picture on it and Cyrus as a way to praise what God was doing with Donald Trump. And we can see how people are so connected and so um, tied to Donald Trump that it doesn't matter what he's done or, or any kind of influence that he's had, they just want him back in charge. Now, in September 19th, in 2016, and also then again in Washington, D.C., the same month in September of 2018, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but the image of Baal was erected in our nation. ISIS was on the rampage. They destroyed many historical places in Syria, and the Temple of Baal was destroyed. And so an artist decided to replicate the archway to the Temple of Baal, and they brought it to New York City, the place of our nation's founding. And then they set it in uh, Washington, D.C. as a display 
And this picture we have here is a picture of the archway of Baal overshadowing our nation's capital. As this to say, who is in charge of this nation? It's not God any longer. In 2020, in a highly contested election with claims of fraud and unlawful handling of votes, Joe Biden wins the election for the Democratic Convention, whose symbol this year is shocking, if you didn't know. On the left is the Democratic Convention's symbol. On the right is the pentagram, the satanic symbol. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. He won in a party that whoever designed this, if they were being mischievous or if they were just trying to pull a fast one or if they actually knew what they were doing, they are declaring who is really in charge, who is really in power. It's not Yahweh God. The enemy is becoming more bold and more brazen to show his face, to show what he is up to. The pentagram represents the uh, demon Baphomet. It's not male, it's not female, it's not fully human, it's not fully animal. It's a goat demon reticent of the god Pan, where we get the name pansexual. Who Pan is a god whose altar was at the base of Mount Hermon, the very location where the angels rebelled against God and created their pact to corrupt mankind. It's the same place where Jesus took his disciples and said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet we have people in our highest levels of government who are promoting, who are supporting, who are behind the very activities and practices, belief systems that these demons, that these doctrines of devils have been sowing in the world to try to corrupt mankind. And there's now a boom in transgender youth. According to the New York Times from 2017 to 2020, there's an estimated 1.4 to uh, um, of 13 to 17-year-olds and 1.3% of 18 to 24-year-olds are transgender, comparing to only about 0.5% of all adults. And many parents and, uh, of young children that I talk to today, they report that their kids' average school experience, that it's no longer taboo to be LGBTQ, now it's taboo to be what they call cisgender or traditionally heterosexual young people. There's a shift in our culture from what's acceptable and what's not. And what we're ultimately doing is we're forsaking the image of God in us for the image of something else. And the one voice that's supposed to stand up to preach the truth in love to a world descending in chaos is becoming more and more splintered, more and more denominations of the Christian faith are now shifting not to stand strong on biblical truth, but to be inclusive, supportive, and even celebratory of these behaviors rooted on idolatry, the very things binding people into bondage rather than preaching the truth that would set them free. In America, according to Pew Research, just to name a few, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church, Quakers, Unitarian Universal Association of America, United Church of Christ, the Alliance of Baptists, Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Church International Global Alliance of Affirming, Apostolic Pentecostals, uh, the Pentecostal Church in various degrees, the Covenant, uh, Covenant Network Reconciling Pentecostal Church, International, uh, and many, many more, and in, even in modern day, the United Methodist Church is becoming more and more splintered as many are moving towards inclusion, 
to this immorality as a virtue while many are trying to stand strong on the word of God. What we're seeing in our world today is this idolatry and demonic lies, these false belief systems rooted in our culture that are having an effect on people who are calling themselves Christians and by the name of Christ. Where we now shed the blood of the innocent to cover the sins of the guilty. Many of these affirming churches are also in support of abortion. I mean, just think about it. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. So what better gift to a young couple they're newly married, that are they're starting a life out than with the blessing of a child. What better way to redeem a transgression when two people choose to do something outside of God's will? Rather than walking in shame, they're given the gift of life in a Bible, in a, in a baby. They're able to redeem that moment. God sends children into the world to redeem. And what does abortion do? It says, no, God, your gift's not good enough. That's too inconvenient for my life. And so we're going to sacrifice the child to cover the sins of the parent. But you know what? That's what we did to Jesus Christ. God looked at the sin of the world and he said, you know what? The best way to redeem their sin, the best way to redeem their transgression is, you know what? I'll send them a child. I'll send them my son. And Jesus came. And what did we do? We killed him too. We've been doing the same thing since the beginning of time. We've been sacrificing the innocent to cover the sins of the guilty. But beloved, Jesus went to the cross knowing he was gonna go. He went to die for our sin, to cover our guilt and shame so that no matter what we've done in this life, we can be made new, we can be made whole, we can break free from all the bondage and all the lies and things that are going on in this culture that try to bind us and hold us down. And even though these are harsh words to the churches, and this is a revelation of where we are today, we can see this in many lives. We probably have many people that we know that are involved in these things or, or participate or at least connected in some way. What I believe we need to take to heart is first, people are not the problem, the enemy is the problem. Paul in Ephesians 6 said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities and powers. It's not the people that are the problem, it's the power behind them. It's the one sowing the lie, it's the one twisting the truth, it's the one that's making them believe in things about themselves that are not true. So he can steal, kill, and destroy. But number two, just as Jesus already spoken, we need to hold fast to what we have and stay true to our faith. If there's something in your life right now that is not according to God's will, he doesn't want to shame you. He wants to set you free from it. And so he wants you to come to him while there's time, while he's giving you time to repent, while he's giving you time to receive his grace, to come and lay that down and say, God, I'm tired of living outside of obedience to you. I know you have better for me. I know you have good plans for me that are for good and not disaster to give me a future and a hope. I'm going to lay this down and the best of my ability, I ask you for the power and the desire to live differently, to live for you. And he wants to bring that into your life to set you free, to help you find out who you're truly meant to be and the purposes that he has for you. If there's stuff in our lives we need to repent, the Bible says confess your sins one to another and pray for each other and you can find healing. But it takes a choice. I'm going to choose to believe the word of God. Number two, as believers, we need to pray, 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 pray. 
pray for our fellow believers and for the churches who are falling away. God is incredibly gracious and he's giving us time in this time of grace to find and align ourselves with the truth. We need to pray for our fellow believers and churches who are falling away, that they'll come back to the faith, that they'll repent before it's too late. We need to pray that God would raise up faithful believers to bring revival to those denominations and those movements. Or we need to pray that God would take out the faithful believers and bring them to a place where God's truth is preached, where God's presence can be found, where healing and wholeness can be experienced in his presence. And number three, it matters enough to Jesus to tell believers he's going to judge the immoral and the unfaithful. Not to bring condemnation and shame, but it's a warning so we don't cave in. So we stand strong and stand tall. Because the days will grow more evil. They will become more perverse. And then there's a movement now to declassify pedophiles as merely minor attracted persons. Just another sexual orientation. And it's coming. It's coming. It's already being propagated. So the days are going to become more evil. And so the tendency, the temptation will be to go along with the culture. But beloved, we know that judgment is coming. So we need to be steadfast in what we know, steadfast in our belief, holding fast to our faith. And we need to pray for those who don't know what's up or what's down, what's left or what's right. We need to be all the more vigilant in sharing the gospel because Jesus promised if we remain in the truth, it will set us free. And that's what we need. We don't need more confusion or more lies. We need more truth. And in that truth, we can experience the incredible, unconditional love of God. It is only God, in my experience, when you're at your lowest moment, after your biggest blunder, your greatest failure, to wrap you up in his arms and say, I love you, I always have, and I always will. Man will betray you, man will walk away from you, but God will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus promises, if you come to me, I will never turn you away. I will never cast you out. There is not a love on this earth like that. It's in Jesus. So let's bow for prayer as we go into a time of response. And the challenge is this. Who in your life or what in your life do you need to bring to the Lord? What are some things that you've believed? And when you read God's word and you say that they, they're not in alignment together, what, are the, what is in your life or what have you been believing that you need to submit to the Lord and say, God, I think this way, I felt this way, I believe this way, but I read your word and I read a different story. And today, the best that I know how, I'm going to choose to believe what you say. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to humble myself under the word of God. And Jesus, I'm going to put my faith and trust in you to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Who do you know in your life that needs you to intercede for them every day? Who's bought some lies and twisted truth? Will you commit to praying for them? There's somebody in my life that fits this category. And I'm be honest, I don't pray for them as much as I should. And I need to commit to praying for them every day. Why? Because Jesus is our only hope. 
Jesus is the only hope. One day, he's going to return with a two-edged sword in his hand. And my prayer is, is that we take as many people to heaven with us as we can. What's in your life you need to surrender? Who's in your life you need to pray for? And will you agree the way what Paul the Apostle said, that we need to pray in the Spirit at all times for believers everywhere? Will you commit to praying for the churches in this city and the churches in our nation? in the churches around the world, that they would stand strong and stand true so that when Jesus returns, he finds us faithful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your message, Jesus. We thank you for the warning. We thank you for the gut check, the heart check. And we thank you, God, that you don't give it to us to shame us or to condemn us but to awaken us, that the scales would fall off our eyes, that the hardness would break off of our hearts, and the reality of where we are in the place and time would come to fruition. We'd come to fullness, God, and we would get serious with our faith. That we'd be so thankful for forgiveness and be so overwhelmed with your goodness that we would not turn a blind eye to those in our lives that we know are struggling, that need you. And I thank you, God, that you love us even when we weren't perfect. I love the verse that that Scott shared, that even when we were still sinners, you loved us and you died for us. You did it for us. You did it for me. In the midst of my sin, in the depth of the darkness that I was living in, even when I wanted to follow you, even when I wanted to believe in you, and I was continually making the same decisions over and over again. You never left me. You never betrayed me. You never turned your back on me. You continued to call to me. You continued to draw me close until the day I made the decision to submit and say, no more am I going to live this way. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to break free of this and to live for you. And it's in that moment your power came in that you began to do a transforming work. And I just pray for those who are here that need that same power to be released in their lives today. That you'd give them the desire and the power to make the decisions they need to make. To break free from every demonic stronghold. And walk strong in the mighty power of God. And I thank you, God, for your grace. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. We're going to go into a time of prayer and invite our prayer team to come forward. For the next few moments, if there's something on your heart that you need prayer for, if there's something in your heart that you need to confess to get out before the Lord, we encourage you to come and to kneel down in these first row of seats and come before the Lord. If there's something that you'd like prayer for, our prayer team is down here. If you just need encouragement, if there's somebody, if there's somebody in your life that you know doesn't have a relationship with you or somebody that is caught up in a stronghold that they need to be set free from, come forward. And intercede with your brothers and sisters in Christ for that person. And for the next few moments as we're responding, remain in an attitude of prayer. And then when we're finished, Chris will dismiss us. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you. 